Welcome to the Splinters Podcast from the team on the bench. Community Radio's leading no-holds-barred Friday night sports show. Available online and replayed on Triple H 100.1 FM. Now, here's your host, the Sultan, Tony Dosen. Welcome to Splinters, second episode of our new podcast as part of the bench programming on Triple H 100.1 FM. My name is Tony Dosen, the Sultan. Great to have your company. Whether you're listening on Triple H 100.1 FM, www.triplehfm.com.au or at podcasts.com. That's right. Fairly simple. Podcasts, plural, dot com, anytime you like. Joining me for episode two after doing such a... A sterling job in episode one is, oh, geez, there's another splinter. Oh, and another one. Goodness me. What are you going to do about these splinters, uh, Lord Mayor of uh, Leichhardt, Keith Topolsky? Or is this the, uh, the, uh, the, the throwback to the old Leichhardt Oval circa 1960? Well, this is the whole point of naming it Splinters, the Bench Podcast, to Ow. get those splinters into you and actually go old school oh, with the sporting analysis geez. and none of this stuff about trying to make friends with everybody. We are old school. We are no holds barred. And that's why we're talking Splinters, the Bench Podcast, rather than Pillows, the Bench Podcast. Oh, please. There's enough of that. Now, look, we're going to, in this episode, talk about a lot of things related to rugby league. But things that you may not be hearing about elsewhere, but things that if you've been listening to us on our rugby league broadcasts this year and also on the bench, you'll know exactly where we come from. We're going to start straight from the top with refereeing. Now, look, it's no secret that Keith and myself have been critical of the standard of refereeing at the level at which we call the game Not just this year, 2018, but in recent years. There's been a steady decline uh, for whatever reasons. We're going to delve into them in a moment. But I'll tell you something that you may have heard on the bench and I'm going to elaborate a bit further on. I was approached, no names, no pack drill, by a current New South Wales graded referees squad member during the recent Emerging Nations World Cup which was won, of course, by Malta, who defeated New A in the final. And contrary to other members, who we understand were quite critical of what we had to say on our broadcasts and the social media trolling and the various criticisms we copped, this member had a simple message, Keith. He said, Tone, was it you? I said, of course it was me. He said... Keep it going. Maintain the rage. So what does that tell you about the current standard of morale or the current level of morale in our referees, a lot of whom are the next level into NRL ranks? It it tells you a lot about the problem that you have and it goes all the way to the top in the NRL with gross base factionalism. Now, for for those of you that listen to the bench regularly, it it is deep, but you'll, you'll know... If you, if you listen to the bench regularly, you'll know that Caruso and I dabble in the realm of party politics, so we're used to this idea of factionalism, and we're familiar with the negativity that can go with it. This is Liberal Party talk now here, for those of you that are uh, the other way inclined. Yes, we, we tend to the right in our political discussions, but in, in terms of the factionalism in right refereeing... Right Khan, I would have thought. I, well, we'll leave that for another podcast, and then we'll get Caruso on, and then we'll really go nuts, but the factionalism... You, you'll need Dr. David Moffat then. Is involved in refereeing is 
perhaps even more brutal than party politics because it is so fluid and it is so personality driven. Now, factionalism in party politics can sometimes go towards an, an idea or a set of ideas. If it was factionalism in refereeing which differed between different styles of refereeing and in your face, aggressive, high penalty count versus a low penalty count, lots of talk, I could wear that. But that's not what it is because the directions on how to referee come on high and we know this because now we've got Graham Annesley in charge and Tony Archer's already been punted. No, move to the side, move to the side to another position out of the way. Well, he's been punted from the refereeing hierarchy. It is still a development position that he has, yes, but it's not referees based. The problem with refereeing, and you see it right at the top, is you've got the Sutton faction and the non-Sutton faction, and that is what has driven away someone like Matt Checken. And this filters all the way down through the rep squad, right through the grade squad, down to the local associations, which we'll get onto later at at an association level. But the factionalism that has riven refereeing in this day and age has absolutely destroyed officiating. This is where people get frustrated because you don't see the best referees refereeing first grade. You see complete cock-ups in first grade. They take those frustrations on personally and then they go to the junior games and they let it out there because you're not supposed to let it out in public in first grade and oh, you can't say that talk about the game those up. referees. Talk the game yeah, up. talk the game up. Then they let it out at the wrong people. The junior referees who are just having a go and trying to improve and that's when those referees quit and you're left with the with the polystyrene cups of the world <laughs> refereeing grade and looking at getting into the higher grades and then the NRL and is absolutely tragic well I'll tell you what this other uh, a couple of things that this graded member getting back to this conversation that he had with me at length during the emerging nations rugby league world cup he said look a couple of things you mentioned Tony Archer Cast your mind back to a review that took place at NRL level about the standard of refereeing that was released, I think it was 2013, 2014, 29 recommendations, 29 of them to improve the standard of refereeing from bottom to top, top to bottom. Only three were accepted and acted upon. That many, that many. Well, one of the three was the creation of this National Referees Director position. And this individual told me that Tony Archer angled for that position from the time the review came out and the recommendations were listed so that he could save his you-know-what if there was a a rainy day or a nuclear winter option, i.e. someone with an idea like Graham Annesley coming in, or, God forbid, the return of W. Harrigan, uh, which we won't see again because he is definitely persona non grata. He angled for this position to basically protect himself and save his job. And he succeeded in doing that because he's been moved to the side away from refereeing but still in development because he was in a position that was still deemed to be required on the back of this review so in the end Tony Archer probably doesn't give a damn he's saved his job he saved his backside okay he's not looking after the referees anymore but he's still earning a a thieving income 
out of the game of rugby league, and that is a disgrace. It is, because, as you say, he saved his job, and that means that he's got the cushy role with the NRL or the ARL, depending on how they want to structure the game development, and it means that people who have brought pain to the game, who have really brought the game to its knees in a lot of ways and taken the game backwards, are actually protected by this system and you can't have a system that protects those who are destroying the game if you're going to properly develop the game and dare I say talk the game up. You have to make sure that the right people who can promote the game push the game forward and as much as I thought Bill Harrigan as a referee with his reputation I thought he was overrated but the one thing that Bill Harrigan never stepped away from grand, he did referee he 10 did. grand finals he did but I thought a couple of other referees got a little shortchanged in that period having said that the one thing you can never doubt about Harrigan was his commitment to what he thought was the best way of refereeing and that was to officiate the game and let it flow now sometimes yeah okay he let it flow too much I don't like the idea of only two or three penalties in a game if there's eight penalties you penalise it but he at least had this idea that if it's there and you have to penalise it, you penalise it rather than throwing in random penalties. It's up to the players to determine how many penalties are given in a game. That was his attitude. As much as you can get the count down, then you go for that. But if the players won't let you do it, then you'll go after them. And that's what he did in 2002, I think it was. A memorable night at the old Marathon Stadium and Parramatta would not let up and four of them ended up in the bin. And Gray Manersley in his first stint in the NRL uh, organization then hauled Bill in on the Tuesday I think it was and said did you think about what this would do for the image of the game well no because Bill's attitude was the players can determine what sort of game we have and if I have to blow 3,000 penalties put four in the bin and ruin the spectacle that's their problem if Shane, I can get away with two penalties that's their decision Shane Hayne did something similar in his early couple of years a mm. famous night in, again involving Parramatta but at this Parramatta time, Stadium at Parramatta involving Stadium with, with David Peachy yep. a famous send off with David Peachy which I still remember to this day now let's take a step back and you're going to ask the question now if you're listening on podcast.com or Triple H 100.1 FM where do we come from how do we know about this what authority do we have in talking about refereeing well I'll answer that question for you both Keith and I have actually refereed at a reasonable level now you can come to it in a moment too Keith because I'll give you my background briefly I refereed in three states, three states, WAACT, New South Wales, in my time as a referee. And I was good enough, fortunate enough, lucky enough to get a, a WA grand final line in a developing state nearly 20 years ago. And I was fortunate enough to get my share of junior grand finals and got to a standard of reserve grade, A grade, C grade at the park level. All right, the politics... You probably know me by now. I call a spade a bulldozer, and that doesn't sit too well in the politics of referees' associations. But I refereed for long enough and refereed enough games of an enough higher standard to know what it's like to read and feel a game and read where a game is going. And that's where I have the problem today, where you have a bunch of kids who are chucked in with no experience, no uh intelligence in how to referee men because they've come out directly from junior representative football the, rep the best under 16s and 18 kids out there nothing wrong with that but quite frankly you can get trained monkeys to referee junior representative football because at that level those kids 
do not want to do the proverbial in the wrong general direction sideways for fear of seeing their promising career go up in smoke by being punted by their coach and punted by the NRL club that they are playing for. Because that's what would happen if they mucked up or did something stupid or silly on a regular basis at that level of the game. So therefore, you have very good discipline, you have very good uh, standards of, of self-control at that level of the game. Mm. We're getting these referees from there and chucking them into Sydney Shield and Ron Massey Cup and BRL and Fogs First Grade in Brisbane where they're refereeing men. And in a lot of instances, these men have gone as far as they can in the game. They're not going to make it any further than this level of football. They're not going to make the NRL. They're not going to make New South Wales Cup. They're not going to make Queensland Cup. And if they do, that's as far as they'll go. So there's a completely different attitude there where you've got blokes who think, you know what, I don't give a toss what this referee thinks. This is a, a quote, a young piece of meat. I've had players tell me this. A young piece of fresh meat when they see a new referee and you can bet your bottom dollar that they test him to the nth degree time after time after time. Those little battles from kids chucked in after refereeing other kids leads to the problems that we have now where in that Asquith elimination final against Blacktown workers in a, what was it, a 54-14 game, Martin Jones still found, what was it? 28 penalties. About that. 27, sorry, 27 penalties he found. 14-13 to Asquith. How can you find 27 penalties in a 54-14 game is beyond me, but he did that day. And that's what's coming through. That's the problem. It is. And th then you've got the flip side where you've got some referees who come through associations that have very strong A-grade competitions. I refereed for nine years in Western Sydney. I spent most of my time refereeing a higher level in 16s and 17s. I only managed... In Parramatta. In Parramatta. I only made it to one C-grade centre, and that was an absolute farce of a game in the last round of the season. But most of my time was spent in that 16-17s bracket towards the end of my active career before shin splints took hold. And that, again, is that junior rep development phase where you've got your Matthews and your ball players coming back knowing that they have a positive future. However... Parramatta like to spread the talent around three or four clubs. You would then have teams come through and know that they couldn't compete with these, these teams and that would result in 30 or 40 point blowouts. When you've got 16, 17, even 15 year olds playing in a blowout game against players that they know they are high care. quality they they're care. not going to care and they're going to get frustrated and then they're going to start turning it on like we see in Shield and Massey and get really niggly. And not only do they test the referee, but they test the other players. And sometimes the players will snap, and that's the sort of breeding ground that you get a really positive strengthening of morale, of intensity, of mental uh, aptitude within the referee. So you can handle those difficult players, you know how to talk to them, you know how to defuse a situation, because just like humanity, players are no different. Sometimes the easiest way to defuse a situation is to get in a player's face and read him the riot act and throw everything at him apart from the kitchen sink. Some, t some players, you'll need to crack a joke with them. Some players, you'll just give them a little bit of a look and sort of wag the finger and say naughty naughty and they'll know to step back from it. The problem is that 
Again, you aren't exposing referees to these sorts of games. You don't have the high quality or the high number of 16-17s games across all associations. They get thrown into the junior reps where you're right. These kids are desperate to make sure that they make a positive impression so that they can go on and play first grade. So they're not going to do anything that would throw them out of out of contention. So they're going to behave themselves. These junior referees come through. They've been spotted. They haven't been exposed to A grade for the most part. And they think, this is wonderful. This is easy. Easy. And then you go and take on the likes of a Shannon Gallant, a Shay Jarvis, going back a few years of Jamie Forbes. And they go to water because they got no idea and they blow 27, 28 penalties. And what's worse, you can have 20 penalties in the game. I don't mind that. But if you're getting up over 20 penalties, there's room there to put someone in the bin and open the game up. And they never do. Let's go back to what this individual spoke to me about. In saying that he wanted us to, quote, maintain the rage and keep up the pressure, he also said to me that there are certain individuals who listen to certain other individuals and that there is also direct pressure on the Sutton faction from no less than Todd Greenberg, the CEO of the NRL, Mm -hmm. right now. So if Todd Greenberg is taking a hands-on view with refereeing, not too dissimilar to what John Quayle did back in the day in the Arthurson Quayle era in the 1980s and 90s in the Winfield Cup, well then, shouldn't we know about it? Shouldn't we hear about it? So at least then we can direct the questions the right way rather than put the Suttons under pressure because this individual also told me about some very embarrassing interviews in commercial media where Bernard Sutton ducked, weaved, dodged, uh, got under the desk, got under the bouncers, got under the beamers that were thrown at him and looked an absolute fool. There was a classic one, and I don't recall whether it was Triple M or 2GB, but it was after the Matt Checken game at Shark Park where yeah, he blew it was 2GB. 33 and this was what And this was what I was... Yeah. Yes, exactly. And uh, Checken put Cameron Smith in the bin. We all thought this was magical. 33 penalties, Cameron Smith's going to the bin, and we're getting on top of it. And then Bernard Sutton came out, and I, he would dead set have been able to stand under a shower for 15 minutes and duck and weave throughout the water and not get wet. He put on that many moves to avoid answering the question. Where the, where well, he looked the, like a fool doing so. He did. But where the problem exists is if you're going to have Todd Greenberg overseeing the overall approach to referees okay. and give direction as I was told, actually give mm. direction to Bernard Sutton, right, we're going to concentrate on rucks this week, we're going to concentrate mm. on 10 metres this week, we're going to concentrate on the obstruction rule this week, well then, isn't that bastardising the rules of the game? It is, but you've also got to question... Okay, Todd Greenberg was CEO for Canterbury for a long time, and he, he had a pretty good record at Canterbury before he went in as NRL and Stadium to Australia IC, as well. And Stadium Australia. What does what does he know about rugby league? What does he actually know, feel, understand, having his DNA about the game? Because he spoke about how Quayle and Arthurson over oversaw everything and looked over the referees as well. They both played first grade. Arthurson played a grand final. Quayle, I think, might have played for City. Quail play for Australia. Australia. My, he was apologies the fa- to John Quail. He was the famous man that chased Graham Langland's white boots on that 1975 World Series tour and never quite got them after Changa threw them over the crossbar at a training venue in the north of England. My apologies to John Quail. There is something I don't know about the game of rugby league. But that they had a history in the game. Arthurson may not have played for Australia, but he played first grade for Manly. He played in grand finals. So and he did came- John Quail. 
he did. And they both went through the administrative processes, not just straight into CEO, but they went through the little jobs. Back when the secretary or the CEO of a club was in everything. They were in selection meetings. They were raising money. They, they were organising insurance. everything. St- John Quayle started collecting the money from the poker machines at East Leagues after he retired. That's exactly right. And they they know the game. They are part of the game. The game is part of them. Where does Todd Greenberg get his knowledge from? And this is where the problem is. If Todd Greenberg's overseeing the, the referees, what does he know about the game? Not, not about the fans or uh, the entertainment product, about the game of rugby league and how it should be officiated. And how, what does he know about refereeing to its nth degree? All right. Mm. This individual also told me that he was glad that Graham Annesley had come back and was hoping that perhaps even Matt Checking could be recalled and saved at the 11th hour from taking his bat and ball and going to England and refereeing in the Super League from next year onwards. Because he also told me that after that night at Shark Park, he was actually called in to an office Mm. with Bernard Sutton. Yep. And as Bernard Sutton was about to dress him down, he said, listen, I was told by this individual, listen, you're not going to like what I'm going to tell you. Matt Checkin got up and walked out of that meeting. So from that point, that was the beginning of the end. Mm. So what do we do about it from here? Where do we go? How do we fix this? I'll give you my idea very briefly, all right? And it's going to be some pain for the Parramatta and Penrith competitions. At some point during future years... We may have to extend or tinker with the good old-fashioned Referees Exchange Program. You know about it, mm-hmm. Keith. I know about it. Where the best handful of referees go from one district to another for a weekend or two weekends and referee games in other districts so they can get some experience. I was lucky enough to be called upon to do that from Canberra to Western Suburbs to Gambletown in one of my years of refereeing down there. Maybe it's time that some referees are asked to step down for a few weeks, or two weeks, or one week. The Parramatta and Penrith competitions, they're the only competitions that have proper decent A grades right now. Get these blokes from junior reps and chuck them in there for two or three weeks during the season at the end of the junior rep season before they get graded. So at least the powers that be can see who can cut it and who can't. Two or three weeks isn't going to cut too much out of a a Penrith or Parramatta season. And I say that because, quite frankly, you're not going to chuck them in this ICC uh, inter-conference, inter-divisional competition where you've got teams from various divisions all lumped into one comp because all the other competitions have shrunk to a size where they're virtually dead. And you're not going to chuck them into Manly because the Manly North A grade competition is virtually dead. You're not going to chuck them into Cronulla because that competition is virtually dead. That's the simple solution that I have. But whether the powers that be have the foresight to do that is open to question because they're all still busy protecting their own backsides. You can also go to the bush. You have exchanges with Illawarra. You have not necessarily exchanges with Group 6 because Wests and Group 6 are sort of becoming interchangeable these days if they run into some refereeing difficulties. What you need to do is take an approach. You will often get graded referees who retire, not because of factionalism or because they get sick of what's going on in the city, but because... Which was the case with... um 
uh, Steve Tedro Lyons. Yeah, that's true. But sometimes you'll get referees retire simply because they've got a new work opportunity and they need to set themselves up longer term. And let's face it, refereeing is not a lifetime career, just like playing. You've still got to run around and you've still got to look after yourself after you retire. So some referees will go back and referee just because they enjoy it. What you should do for the first eight or so weeks of a competition is to make sure that those referees who are former grade referees who have retired from grade, they don't referee the top division. They don't referee A grade or first grade or whatever the local local definition is. You bring in younger referees who are up and coming in the junior rep squad. And if you don't have any more, then you invite referees from Sydney who are in the junior rep squad and can't get an A-grade game out to the country to referee first grade in the bush or A-grade in Illawarra or anything like that. And that will give them exposure to the real tough guys. And it will give them exposure to ex-first graders who still know how to milk penalties and milk the system in their favour on the field but aren't necessarily playing with that same intensity. You go up to uh, the far north coast. Todd Carney signed on with Byron Bay. I yep. think Brent Kite's with Tweed Heads. Correct. Jamie Lyon's gone to Ballina. This is a goldmine. This is where you should be sending your representative squad referees to get experience during the season because I can guarantee you that Jamie Lyon and Brent Kite come together. They're going to be getting in under each other's skin because of their history at Manly. And if you can get a young up-and-coming rep squad referee exposed to that without the real nasty edge, they will be so much better for it going back to the rep squad and then when they get pushed into grade and handle the likes of Jarvis and Gallant. One more thing before we take a break and pull another splinter out of my backside. Um, what about finding new referees? You have to go perhaps to the clubs themselves and I think you also have to go to the schools. Now this is how I, this is probably making too much sense because the NRL Commission have been avoiding schools unfortunately like the plague, mm. it's got to be said, but that's where you get new referees to start off with. Where is some of this billion dollars that's been spent on empire building and bureaucracy building when it should be spent on going into schools, matching the AFL, man for man in finding not only players but also referees. But maybe I'm making too much sense. Let me oh there's another split I've got to you are making sense, but I think the problem will solve itself if you actually hold first grade referees accountable. Because as I say, and I saw this quite often in Parramatta, is you will get parents who take their kids to first grade games and they have to hold their tongue, bite their tongue when the first grade referee stuffs something up and they have to behave properly because they're in public and the police will be there. And then you go to junior games on the weekend and then you see a referee make a really bad error, something that will place a child's safety in danger as well if the referee doesn't enforce safe play and then the parent will go off their nut and they'll snap at the junior referee and the junior referee will go. You need to make sure that first grade referees are held accountable so people don't get frustrated and take it out on the junior referees. When the junior referees feel more protected, they will come back. But yes, go to the schools, go to the clubs, ask those players to come down or those students to come down and complete the course, absolutely, and you can bulk up your numbers that way. Absolutely. Now, uh, one message to this individual, trust us, we will maintain the rage and we will keep a vigilant watch on our referees. Games that we call on this station, Triple H 100.1 FM, in 2019. And we will and praise beyond. them where justified Absolutely. As well. And we did that during grand final week and during the final series just completed. All right. All uh, correspondence will be entered to Triple H 100.1 FM and podcast.com. 
Checks, there's another one. Welcome back to Splinters, episode two. You're listening to us on Triple H 100.1 FM, www.triplehfm.com.au and podcasts.com. That's right, podcasts, plural, dot com. My name is Tony Dosen, the Sultan. The Lord Mayor of Leichhardt, Keith Topolsky, is with me. We're talking rugby league. We're talking things in and around the game that you may not hear about with some of the others elsewhere because we like to delve a little bit deeper here, such as our passion for the game. And one thing I've become passionate about this year in particular is the international game. I, for one, have been sick and tired. As much as I'm a sports nut, I've been sick and tired of rugby union shoving down our throats for the last 20 years since the Rugby World Cup took off and became a reasonably decent world sporting event. Oh, look at how great our international game is. In rugby league, you can only play here and there, but you can travel the world in rugby union. You can play sevens. You can do what you like all around the world. Well, you know what? Rugby league is now fighting back. You've only got to have a look at what's been going on in recent weeks with Rugby League World Cup 2021 qualification matches, which have been played on both sides of the Atlantic, to the point now that we have 11 teams already qualified for the 2021 Rugby League World Cup. The eight quarter-finalists from last year's tournament, Australia, England, Tonga, Fiji, New Zealand, Samoa, Papua New Guinea, and Lebanon. Three qualifiers have qualified for the Rugby League World Cup in the last two weeks in the qualifiers played on both sides of the Atlantic. France and Wales from Europe, from their recent European Championship, which France won undefeated. And the feel-good story, which has probably slipped up to everyone's guard, but this is going to be probably as good as what Tonga was last year. Jamaica, that's right, the Reggae Warriors qualifying for their first ever Rugby League World Cup when they defeated the United States in a top-draw game, 16 points to 10, in Jacksonville, Florida, last Sunday morning, Australian time, to take the 11th spot in next year's tournament. We've still got five more teams to qualify. There's a whole series of matches that will be played next year. And Keith, I, for one, absolutely delighted that we are getting real, genuine offshoots of internationalism in the game coming forward now on the back of the Tongan miracle of last year's Rugby League World Cup. It's been brewing for a little while in North America. Now, the American conference we discussed... Canada sadly went down and obviously with my background with hockey I was hoping to see a Canadian team in the World Cup but not to be but Chile also had a crack now Chile, that they were pretty much outclassed in both games but it's a starting point for the game to develop and there's also a nines tournament being held I think in Argentina Correct. shortly between Argentina and Brazil and I think Colombia Correct. is team number three. That will start developing the game in South America you're never going to overtake soccer in South America you're never going to overtake it in Europe. But what you can do is you can sit Rugby Union on its backside in the South Pacific where New Zealand is the only nation in the South Pacific where Rugby Union is the number one rugby code. We're seeing that with Tonga already. Rugby League in Tonga has taken off. It is dominant. Fiji is slowly starting to see Rugby League take over. It's not there yet, but it's getting there. Samoa, it, it has a bit of work to do. Of those big three, Samoa is definitely the, the, the smallest nation. But having said that, 
Go and watch Tonga Samoa at Campbelltown when it's held, or maybe even if they take it back to Western Sydney Stadium. Because I remember going and seeing Tonga versus Samoa the last time they played at a Parramatta Stadium. It was it was electric, absolutely electric. So the passion is there, the desire is there, and with Jamaica, you're taking advantage of those West Indies families that have gone to England, and you're cashing in on those players that are playing maybe in the Championship, maybe fringe Super League players. That's going to push the standard up in the United States and Canada where you have the wolf pack to develop from but that's another story we can get to in a moment that problem in Canada but that development of players with those links back through their ethnicities and their heritages can go back and teach the local players and that's when you're going to get a stronger competition in places such as not to blow my own trumpet but Poland after they oh, won the repertoire in the emerging nations now look, now look there's, there's, a, there's a train of thought that says you know all this is is just a bit of window dressing and it's just Australian players who can't get a look in with Australia using their heritage to play for other nations. And you know what? That's certainly the case. And some of those heritage rules do to be looked at by the Rugby League International Federation when they're not busy spending money on themselves. And we'll come to that in a moment. Uh, you do have some hard-working people out there. Taz Pateri, all this green sprouts that are now starting to grow is very much an offshoot of his work as a lone wolf for a lot of years, tucked in an office at various rugby league headquarters on both sides of the Atlantic, trying to press the flesh and get on the phone and speak to people and trying to keep the game going after he started as an interpreter for a, <laughs> a French interpreter for, yep. for, for, for a side and that opened his eyes to saying, hey, hang on a minute, what can we do about making this game bigger and better in more than just... Sydney, Brisbane, Auckland, Manchester and Leeds. Let's not forget, you mentioned the South Pacific nations, but you forgot one in particular. The only nation in the world where rugby league is the number one national sport. And I deliberately left them out because I knew you'd be coming to them. Yeah, Papua New Guinea. Now, they of course are a sleeping giant. We already know that the PNG Hunters won the Queensland Cup in 2017 and they have untapped potential. You've only got to look at the recent series where the England uh, B-side, or A-side, whatever you want to call it, went to Papua New Guinea and s split the two tests, mm. the, the two unofficial tests that were played. Um, England won in Ley, and the Kubbles returned serve emphatically in Port Moresby in the second international. So then you look at the international calendar itself. Uh, oh, before we even go there... The Rugby League European Federation must deserve credit here for really fostering and working their backside off. Only a couple of handful of individuals working their backside off in Europe. So we have the likes of Norway playing Greece with reasonable sort of domestic competitions in each of these countries. Norway playing Greece in that qualifier in March or April to join Italy, Russia, Spain... Ireland and Scotland in the qualification tournament mm. next year around this time for the last four European spots and then we've got the uh, intercontinental playoff which the United States who were beaten by Jamaica will go into, they'll start short priced favourites against South Africa and an Asia Pacific nation the highest ranked Asia Pacific nation not already qualified at the moment, that's the Philippines now uh, there's some question marks on there because the next round of rankings are due to be released 
early in the new year and in the recent Emerging Nations World Cup. Philippines only won one game. Uh, Niue made the final and Vanuatu unluckily pretty only won one game themselves. They should have won perhaps another one or maybe they two. They should have beaten Hungary, yes. They should have. And the Cook Islands didn't even turn up. Yes, that, that's the other nation that we've forgotten in all this is the Cook Islands because they have a record of having played in World Cups previously. They so have. They, they have that option to turn up and start playing as well. So it's a question but of where they didn't turn up to the Emerging Nations World Cup. That's and true. That's, going to be a, that's a real problem for mm. the International Federation. So um, there are green shoots there. So what are the Rugby League International Federation doing about it? Well, as you would have heard on the bench couple of weeks ago and again I was told this on very good authority by a prominent official a journalist who was very closely involved in the recent Emerging Nations World Cup was that the Rugby League International Federation of the total spend of $100,000 on this tournament 40000 was spent on the CEO Nigel Wood coming out from England and spending the week in Sydney in the second week of the tournament leading up to the final. And with a little bit of that 40000 also spent on the now departed uh, chairman of the Rugby League International Federation, John Grant, making an appearance on finals day. So when you have that going on, that just further perpetuates what I mentioned earlier in segment one on referees, is that the empire building of administrations and the protection of backsides by self-serving individuals at administration levels is nothing short of sickening. And as a result, Keith, rugby league does well in spite of itself, not because of itself. It is. And we've had discussions uh, away from the bench and away from splinters about the effort put in, and we, we discussed it briefly, about the efforts of commentators and broadcasters to actually stream the games and provide some sort of commentary. Now, I think it was the United States and Chile, was it? Correct. The, the game that had to be had to have the the uh, streaming stopped at halftime because there was no coverage given for the people that were streaming it and their equipment was in danger of being destroyed because of the turning in the weather. We also had situations where the commentary was less than illuminating. But these guys are doing, doing their, their best. best. They're doing their absolute best. And what could really help is people, and not necessarily us, but maybe you do go to Fox Sports, take some of those commentators, send them over, and let those guys listen to them and learn the game from the analysts that they've got so Although, that they I'll can then go now. back. Although I'll tell you what, we're going to put our hands up now. Why not? You know, I mean, we've done enough... By God, I've called enough rugby league, and so have you over the last few years to know what's what and what's not. Um, it wouldn't take much to teach some of these guys the the inside and outs of rugby league. I'll go one step further. During the recent European qualifiers, the first match, there was a group, a very good group, that covered mm. all games in the European Championship Series very well. They were able to get their coverage on the BBC website, they had an agreement with the BBC to cover all those games to a decent professional standard, except one match, the first match of the whole tournament in Dublin between Ireland and Scotland. If you wanted to watch that game, that match was covered by 
someone's camcorder through a phone because the company that were covering the uh, tournament for the BBC, the outsourced company, couldn't come up with equipment or bodies on the floor or manpower in enough time to cover both that match and the match in Carcassonne between France and Wales four hours later on the other side of the channel. So watching that, and the second half, in fact, I wouldn't recommend you watch after a few drinks because it was because it was done the wrong way round. I mean, the camera was facing the right way, but it was in reverse. So teams were running in the wrong direction, inside out. Mirror image stuff. So when you have those World Cup qualifying matches covered so poorly, you've got to ask the question of the Rugby League International Federation, what are you doing spending money on Lobster for officials coming on planes, flying first class to Australia, when these guys could have done with a few thousand dollars to help them cover matches to the proper standard. And it's not that there wasn't interest. That match between Jamaica and the United States at, at its peak had nearly a thousand viewers last mm. Sunday morning Australian time. And not just in the usual suspect places. All over the world. Mm. There were people watching that match in every continent of the globe. And there were people there who were getting their first real taste of rugby league. Oh, one couple of individuals said, I found this by accident. And how good's this? Yep. We need to cultivate more of those people in other parts of the world. And then you will see the internationalisation of the game really take off and level on a par with its rugby union cousin. Mm. There, there is a long way to go in terms of getting level with rugby union because it has a head start and it has a head start in a lot of nations. And the bigger problem, apart from the head start, and I touched on this most briefly, but this is something that goes all the way back to Vichy France during the Second World War when the Nazis oh, geez, took over France. Geez, we're gonna have a this history, is all the way lesson back. Here. And the, you this get is, it all on the on, on the bench and on and splinters. This don't you? is where this first occurred, and this, this isn't a Nazis are evil thing, although they were. But this is what actually happened. What, there were some splinters was on backsides. That that too. But what happened was the Vichy government in France effectively banned rugby league, and then rugby league then came back, and you had Puigo Bear, the chain smoking fullback, who who in in parlance and in newspaper reports was regarded as better than Churchill in a lot of those contemporary reports. Oh, in the 1950s, he, he, was, he was arguably consi- the best fullback, even the best player in the world. He was considered Legendary. better than Churchill. And this this was Australian writers saying this as and well. And he famously said that, I'm not here to tackle. It's not That's my right. job to tackle. <laughs> my job to score points and throw the pass and kick goals and this and the other. And those those 12 meatheads in front of me, they tackle. I do the, fa- I do the fancy stuff with the ball later on. But what happened during that time was rugby league was banned and then after that you had the Puy Gobert era but the French government still wouldn't provide funding for rugby league because they took the advice from rugby union that rugby league was just an offshoot sport that was really part of rugby union and they would come back eventually. 
surely. Now, this is a problem that South African Rugby League is getting into. This is a problem that Canadian Rugby League faces. This is a problem that some of the home nations face, Scotland and Wales and Ireland, trying to get that money. England, not so much, because they have a bit more power in England. This is a problem they're facing in Italy in particular. Yeah. They can't get out from under the Italian Rugby Union because they keep going to the Italian government and saying, no, 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 rugby league's with us and don't worry about that. We'll look after them. And, of course, unions never go into fund rugby league and that, that's just the reality of the situation. But this is something that has to be out there and people have to start promoting the game as different. And if you want to look at the best way you can do that, particularly in a place like Canada, is start talking to people about rugby league. And when they say it's the same as rugby union, say to them, yeah, it's just like how ice hockey is the same as field hockey. And they will start laughing at you and then you can say, well, that's what you're basically saying when league and union are the same sport because they are not, they are different. In rugby union, you get paid $3 million a year to make three tackles and stand around and have a little bit of a cuddle. And in rugby league, that's where you get real athleticism and skill. Indeed. Now, you were very close to the Toronto Wolfpack, which leads to another point about mm -hmm. the, the internationalisation of the game. Canada, a lot of people from afar mm. are thinking, okay, they've got the Wolfpack, okay, they're on their way. They're going to get locals to play for the Wolfpack and that will mm -hmm. start the internalisation mm -hmm. of the game in Canada and that will things will take off from there. But you've been there and for those that look at the situation of the Wolfpack, in any depth or in any detail, it's far from that. All this is, from my reading, it's not too dissimilar to the Manly Sea Eagles franchise. It's just a rugby league franchise that happens to reside in Toronto, when it could in fact reside anywhere mm -hmm. from Vladivostok to uh, Antarctica or anywhere in between, because mm. that's the, the difference that they're making to the development of the game in Toronto and in Canada itself. And this, this is a problem that you will have in North America because North American professional sporting franchises are referred to often as exactly that because they do relocate so often. In the in the National Hockey League, you have currently the New Jersey Devils, who were previously the Colorado Rockies, and before that, the Kansas City Scouts. And before that, I think they had another incarnation. Because it was the owner not liking yeah. the deal he got in one town, taking Moving his bat ball having a cry and going somewhere else that offered him more cash. The Winnipeg Jets uh, started out as the Atlanta Thrashers and the Arizona Coyotes started out as the Winnipeg Jets Mark 1. This is the problem you have in North America where you look at franchises. And this is where the Wolfpack have fallen in with the wrong mentality and they don't understand how rugby league works. They understand how professional sport works, which is why they've set themselves up as a franchise. And that's great if you're looking at it from a business perspective, but you can't justify that if you're looking to grow the game. Now, if the Wolfpack management and ownership don't want to grow the game... Let by they, David Argyle, their chairman, who's a very well-known British mm. businessman, by the way. And if they don't want to grow the game, then that's fine. They can just be a business. But you, you've got to be honest with the body that wants to grow the game in the Canadian Rugby League because they can feed off the Wolfpack. And now that we're going to see a change in structure, whereby it's two home games, two away games for the Wolfpack next year in the championship, this will give them a chance to go into the schools. Now, yeah, okay, throughout the first few the first four or so months of the competition, they're going to struggle because they're going to be up against the NHL playoffs and it looks as 
though Toronto is going to do really well this season. But June, July, August, September, you got baseball and pretty much nothing else. And if you don't want to play baseball, if you want to play with a football, rugby league is going to be the only game in town because the Canadian Rugby Union doesn't have that professional link to any sort of competition around the world, whereas the Sunwolves do in the Super 14 and the Argentinian side do in the Super 14 as well. And this is where the Canadian Rugby League and Toronto Wolfpack really have to work closely together. Take advantage of that two-week block in Toronto. Send the players to the schools. Toronto's only an hour and a half to Niagara Falls. It Yeah, okay, it's four hours to Ottawa, but you can get that Golden Horseshoe area which is one of the most densely populated areas in Canada. If you get them really taking up the game, you can start a junior competition and then you will have cause to go to the Super League and make sure that Toronto Wolfpack can win an argument they actually lost this past season where they had to have, I think it was Riley Jacks, they had to release him to another Super League club, a genuine Canadian player whose parents I think are Canadian, wasn't allowed to play for them because he wasn't British. He therefore filled an import rule. You have a local player who is an import. You can't have that system working and if they can go it's to ludicrous. the Super... Ludicrous. It's ludicrous. And if they can go to Super League and show they have a development system in place, they can grow Canadian players locally. They will have to implement a rule whereby the Wolfpack can have local players and that's your starting point to really grow the game. And well, that can be pushed again by one body if they had teeth. The International Federation. The Rugby League International Federation. They do have teeth because that's how they chew through their lobster. Yes. Well, how certain individuals in that organisation mm. chew through their lobster. Look, they did release a very good sounding international calendar mm. at their Congress in York, which took place over the last couple of weeks where John Grant, perhaps to the cheers of those at News Limited, finally stepped down from anything to do with Rugby League administration. He quit as, as chairman of the International Federation, replaced by another POM, Graham Chapman. Peter Beattie was appointed the vice chairman of the uh, the Rugby League International Federation, the NRL commission head. Mm. So uh, there's a program that's out there, an Oceania Cup, which is supposed to start in the next couple of years involving Australia. Um a tour by Great Britain, the return of the Great mm. Britain side in 2019 for a Southern Hemisphere tour that does not involve at this stage Australia. And then the return of an Ashes series. Remember those? Mm. Tour matches midweek and three tests in 2020 in the old dart in October and November as the lead up to the 2021 World Cup. That's all great. But what about the other emerging nations underneath? What happens to them now after these qualifiers are done and dusted next year? Apparently we're going to have the draw for the 2021 World Cup done two years in advance. Go figure. Mm. Explain that. Why? So the International Federation can... Book hotels. For themselves in the 2021 Rugby League World Cup. Anyway, look... Just briefly, your thoughts on this international calendar, this Oceania Nations Cup with tiered nations and Australia, New Zealand and Tonga in one half and Samoa and uh, Papua New Guinea and Fiji in the other half. Promotion and relegation. Uh, all sounds great on paper. The Rugby League National Federation and the NRL Commission are going to have to get to the 16 NRL clubs and convince them because we could very well be looking down the barrel of club versus country, which has dogged other sports, particularly 
Association football slash soccer. As long as you can keep those international weekends quarantined, you shouldn't have that much of a problem. The problem that you will run into is if you're sending players to the other side of the world into really hostile environments, such as you saw with England, New Zealand this year. I don't think many of the clubs would have raised too much of an issue if that game was being played in San Francisco or in Vancouver, but they took them to altitude. If you're going to take them to altitude, you've got to have a trade-off. You can't take them to altitude and expect them to fly long haul. If you want them flying long haul, you have them playing at sea level. If you want them playing at altitude, it's got to be close to home. There's got to be a trade-off there. The International Federation needs to work in slowly and realise the problems they've had with the NRL in the past, make it more feasible and palatable for the NRL clubs to release these players. The problem there though is in the past promoters mm. shysters, yep. snake oil salesmen have come in to the game thinking they can solve the world's problems in five minutes. Mm. I remember Mike Mayer remember him, the United States Rugby League wow. in the late 1970s sprouting to anyone who would listen that, rug that the, the rugby league would take over the United States by 1990? Mm. What about the individual that promoted the State of Origin match in Long Beach, California which was nothing more than a junket? And what about this... Peter Sterling still trying to run through that banner. Exactly. And what about this... And, and the latest in the long line is Michael Moore who promoted this test yep. match in Denver. And now all of a sudden, surprise, surprise, he can't come up with the cash to mm -hmm. make his basic payments because he's broke. That's right. Uh, because he didn't do his sums properly. And he thought that more people would turn up than mm. actually did, and he gave away too many free tickets. And it comes back to the quality of administration at the Rugby League International Federation, and if they're fair income about things, and if they want to have teeth rather than spend money on junkets. Look, just repeating those, um, where we're at with those qualification matches. Sometime in March or April, we understand it will be Norway versus Greece in a single match playoff at a neutral venue. Could be England, could be Serbia of all places, we hear. Uh, and then, once that's decided, six teams, Italy, Ireland, Scotland, Russia, Spain, and the winner of the Norway-Greece playoff will go into two groups of three, top two teams in each group, home and away, will qualify for the World Cup. And then we've got the inter intercontinental playoff between South Africa, the United States, and one someone from the Asia-Pacific Rim this time next year for the last five spots in a 16-team World Cup in 2021. Hopefully, the 2021 World Cup, when we do get to it, will be the success we hope it will be, mm. that the English are talking it up to be with women's, men's and disabled finals all on the same day. But then that leads to another question, 2025. Michael Moore was going to sprout that the Denver Test was going to be the springboard of the 2025 World Cup in the United States. Well, that looks about as uh, solid as a lemon souffle gone off in the midday sun right now. So very briefly yeah. from a local perspective, just a quick word on what's happening in Ron Massey and Sydney Shield. We understand now that Penrith Brothers have been more or less thrown out of the competition in both Ron Massey and Sydney Shield next year. We understand that uh, Blacktown workers have withdrawn from the Sydney Shield to concentrate on A-grade. I think that's a massive jump between Ron Massey Cup and Penrith mm. A-grade. Ride Eastwood, we understand, are coming in to the Sydney Shield in 2019 with a view to being Shield Massey by 2020. 
And we're hearing that the Windsor Wolves, after they finally got their Penrith A-grade grand final, are coming back in both yep. grades in 2019 again. So our friend Nicholas Kutniak at Hawkesbury Radio will once again be unbearable. Hello if you're listening, Nick. We love you to bits. All right, that's it for Splitters. My thanks to you, Keith Toposky. It's been a lot of fun. We could have gone for another three or four hours on this, but time has beaten us once again. Oh, and there's another splitter that I have to get rid of. And there will always be opportunities to come back and splinters, uh, an hour podcast every week. And any time that we're struggling for any other issues, oh, we please. know that rugby league and the international game and referee, we can go <laughs> for hours. So anytime you hear a refereeing podcast, you'll know that the rest of the sporting world has been fairly quiet that week. Absolutely. Well, it actually hasn't, but we had to get a few things off our mm. chest. Next week... Tune in once again next Tuesday night on Triple H at 8 o'clock on the website www.triplehfm.com.au and at podcasts.com, that's podcasts, plural, .com. Next week, it's going to be Anthony Caruso leading the fray. Good luck with that. That's all for Splinters. (laughs) 